We follow the great servant King Jesus. Sounds like a paradox, doesn't it, when you say servant and king in the same phrase? But that's a lot of what Jesus' ministry was like. Jesus spoke with authority. Jesus brought new commandments. He said, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus welcomed and blessed little children. Jesus had dominion. He had power over nature, over disease, over the demonic realms that were fighting against God. Jesus even had power over death. But Jesus also stopped and he washed the feet of his followers. He was the great king of kings, and yet Jesus came to serve. Let's learn more about that together. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you are the one who came and showed us what a true servant leader is like. You're the one who came to show us the way back to God, and you sacrificed yourself in order to do that. So, Lord, help us to learn what that's all about. Lord, we know from the Apostle Paul, he said when he was leaving the Ephesian leaders, he said, now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all the saints. Lord, we, we know that when we study your word, that it has the potential to build us up, to strengthen us in our faith. So Lord, we pray that we do our part as your word is being proclaimed. Lord, let us be... Uh, Listeners, let us capture everything you want us to, to understand and to put into practice in our lives. And Lord, above all, let us not just be hearers of the word. Because <laughs> that's like the person who walks, looks at himself or herself in the mirror and then forgets what they look like. Lord, we don't want to just be hearers only. We want to be doers of the word. That's where the change in our lives takes place. So help us to do that, to be doers of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today we're going to look at how Jesus' ministry began in Luke's gospel account. Luke was a physician. I don't know if you knew that about that. In Colossians chapter 4, Paul, when he was talking about his companions who were with him, he said, Luke, the beloved physician is with us. So he was a doctor. He was a very competent historian. And Luke was a missionary companion of the apostle Paul. I don't know if you knew this also, but there's only one Gentile to, to our knowledge there's only one Gentile or non-Jewish author of the entire Bible. Think about that. All the other authors are Jewish, and there's one Gentile, and his name is Luke. And so we have Luke's gospel, and we have the book of Acts, part one and part two. Luke wrote this as he kicked off his gospel message. He says, many have tried to report on the things that happened among us. So Luke is writing about 30 years after the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. And he's saying, many people have tried to tell this story. They've written the same things that we learn from others, the people who saw these things. So Luke is saying, I interviewed eyewitnesses. I talked to Mary. I talked to Paul. I talked to Peter. I talked to all these people uh, uh, that we learn from others who saw these things from the beginning and served God by telling people his message. Do you realize you're serving God when you're sharing his message with others? You're sharing the good news because faith comes by hearing. How is somebody going to hear the good news unless somebody like you is going to share it, right? So by the people who were telling this message, the good news message about Christ, and now Luke says, since I myself, now he's saying, hey, I want you to know I did my homework. 
I have studied everything carefully from the beginning, most excellent Theophilus. It's a great Greek word. Theo means God. Philos means lover of. So it's a person who loves God. So as you read his word, are you a Theophilus? Do you love God? Do you want to learn more about who he is and how to better to follow him? It seemed good for me to write it out for you. I arranged it in order to help you know that what you have been taught is true. So Luke says, I've investigated this. I've been a, pan, a companion of apostles. I went back to Israel with Paul when now he's been in prison for two years. And during all that time, unfortunately for Paul stuck in prison, I made good use of the time. I went around Israel and I talked to these eyewitnesses and I said, you tell me the story so that I can write it down for not just for Theophilus, but for every believer in every generation. And we can now benefit from that. Before Jesus came on the scene publicly to officially launch his ministry, there was another man who came before. He was called the forerunner, and his name was John. His name was John the Baptist. Now, you got to keep it in your head. There's, there's more than one John in the Bible, right? There's John the Baptist who came first, and then there's John the Apostle. Those are the main, those are the main people that, that we're dealing with. Today, we're going to be talking mostly about John the Baptist, the person who came before Jesus. So we're in Luke chapter 3. If you want to uh, take out your Bibles, you want to follow along there, you can look at the verses that are uh, before you on the screen. This isn't about the year 25 or 26 AD. That means Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. Um, so Jesus is about 30 years old. John the Baptist comes on the scene about six months before Jesus was baptized. John the Baptist is out there preaching in the wilderness. Where did John come from? Well, Luke is the answer for that one too because in Luke chapter 1, he says John the Baptist came from these two old people that shouldn't have been able to have a baby at all. And it was, it was Zechariah who was a priest and it was his wife Elizabeth and they miraculously were told, John, uh, Zechariah was in the temple area, he was in the holy place. He was told by the angel Gabriel, you and your wife are going to go have a son and you're going to name him John. And he's going to be great. And John ended up fulfilling that prophecy. So six months before Jesus came onto the scene to publicly launch his ministry, there was John the Baptist. Now, John and Jesus were somewhat cousins. I don't think they were first cousins because Elizabeth was supposedly an old lady. And then her cousin Mary, when Mary found out that she was going to give birth to Jesus the Messiah, Mary travels down to Judea to talk to Elizabeth about that. And when uh, Elizabeth, at the time when she met Mary, she was already six months pregnant. And it said that the baby inside of her leaped for joy. Lindsay, I know you're back there in the back. You're having a baby in about a month, right? Have you, has your baby ever leaped since you've been pregnant? Have you been moving around a little bit? Yeah, I can imagine. I was hoping you'd say yes. Uh, so John was like that. He was a pretty active baby there. So let's go to the, the next verse here, uh, slide three. It, in, according to Mark's gospel, it says, and so, and, and Mark is great because he gives a great summary. Luke He's more lengthy. So I, sometimes you just want the short version. And give me the facts, ma'am. As like the guys were talking about in the marriage. They said, what do men want? Men want the report. What do women want when they have a conversation? They want the rapport. 
Okay, so look up that French word anyway. <laughs> it's not a report, put it that way. Uh, so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. Now, the, the wilderness would be in that area outside the city, down by the Jordan River, preaching a baptism of repentance. Repentance means turning from your sins, turning away from your sins. I don't want to live that old lifestyle anymore. And turning back to God. Say, God, I want to live your way, not my old way. And so John's preaching that you need to turn around and come back to God. And if you do so, you will experience the forgiveness of your sins. In Luke's gospel, he quotes uh, Isaiah as saying, John, why are you doing what you're doing? And he says, I'm here to fulfill a prophecy by the prophet Isaiah, which says, prepare the way for the Lord and all the people will see God's salvation. Can you imagine that? an announcement of that saying, hey, people, I'm preparing the way for the Lord to come, the Messiah, and you, if you're, if you're going to be here and you're going to be part of this ministry, you're going to see God's salvation. And that came through and true when Jesus came on the scene. So John the Apostle, now he also wrote about John the Baptist's ministry. Remember, John the Apostle, not John the Baptist, not the same guy. <laughs> uh, John the Baptist was slightly older than Jesus, about six months. Uh, John says it this way, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light. In other words, what, what, how does John describe Jesus? He calls him the light of the world. That's what Jesus self-described him as well. He came to testify concerning that light so that through him, through Jesus, all might believe. He himself, John, now going back to John, John himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. If you read through the Gospel of John, one of the things you'll notice are two great words. One of the words is witness, and then another great word in John is testify. Testify, just like that praise song that we sang this morning. Let the redeemed of the Lord keep it to themselves. Is that what, is that what the song says? No, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. By the way, we have a very public ministry. We have a public faith. We, the last thing God wants us to do as Christ followers is keep it to ourselves. He wants us, he says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Go and make disciples of all nations. You got to go public. You can't be private about your faith. So John came as a witness to the light. Now, witness is used 14 times in John's gospel. The word testify is used 33 times. People were not to believe in John the Baptist. He wasn't the light. He came as a witness to the light. That through John's testimony, John says, my job is to point people to Jesus. You know what your job is? The same as John's. Point people to Jesus. I'm not the light of the world, but I know somebody who is, and I follow him, and his name is Jesus. God, uh, the other word about testify, which is used 33 times, is do you know that your testimony, John gave his testimony, do you know that your testimony, and that's like the idea, what has God done in your life? How has God changed you? How did you become a follower of Jesus, right? that that whole testimony that you have, and everybody has a testimony, is extremely important. And why is that? Because for every 100, 200, 300 people that are out there, for, for, for every one person who's willing to pick up the Bible and read the gospel, there's like a couple 300 people that are, that are reading you and reading me every week. 
So I didn't seem to say that very well. Let me say it again. For every one person who's willing to read the gospel in the Bible, there's two or three hundred people are, who are reading you and me every single week. So we have a testimony. We are a living testimony of the good news of Jesus Christ in our lives. You are a walking testimony one way or another. So here's the deal. Make God look good in your testimony. That's what glorifying God is all about. That's what John the Baptist did. And then John warned. John said, I'm here to, to testify concerning the light, but I'm also here to give a warning, a warning against God's judgment. And John said, the axe, the axe of God's judgment is at the root. That's a symbolic way of saying that judgment is coming near for those who are going to hear about Jesus and who are not going to turn away from their sins and follow him. They are going to experience the acts of God's judgment if they don't give any evidence of repentance. Another symbol that John gave in his testimony was he said there's going to be a fire and that fire is going to burn up. That, that the Messiah is going to separate people like the wheat is separated from the chaff. And the chaff are the people that do not uh, humble themselves and follow Jesus. The wheat are those who do. And the chaff is going to get burned up and the wheat are, is going to be put into God's harvest bin, which is another way of saying to be with God forever in heaven. Let me share with you why I love this guy. I, I love John the Baptist. Okay, I think he's an extremely awesome person in Scripture. He's somebody that I want to emulate with my life. One of the reasons I love John the Baptist is because John the Baptist served God with extreme passion. John was passionate about his ministry. He's out there wailing in the desert, and thousands of people came to him. He was not your milk toast guy. You know, it'd probably be nice if you guys would turn from your sins to God. It'd probably be a good idea. Do you think you might want to do that? You know, how many people is that going to attract? John was a passionate guy. Where did he get the passion? Well, we saw it when he was in Elizabeth's womb. John had passion even before he was born, right? Uh, Elizabeth uh, sees Mary and sees Mary and, and the, the baby Jesus who was just conceived in her by the Holy Spirit. And Elizabeth says, why is this good thing happened to me that the mother of my Lord comes to me? When I heard your voice, Mary, the baby inside of me, six-month-old John the Baptist, leapt for joy. Le jumped with joy. He leaped in his mother's womb when Mary spoke of her pregnancy. So even before John made his public ministry, he lived, he, he was an excitable, passionate guy. He lived alone in the desert. We think he lived in the desert, perhaps with the Essenes. We don't know that for sure. It's just a guess. But we know that, that his parents were really old when they had him. So the chances are they passed away. And where did John go after that? He might have been raised by some really religious community in the desert. Because that's where he came from when he started preaching. Uh, John had a way, he had one of those uh, type of ministry starts where people say, hey, if you ever want to start a ministry, don't do it like John the Baptist. Don't be wearing weird clothes like camel's hair and, and belts like that. Don't be eating weird food like locusts and wild honey. Uh, don't be yelling everybody that they're wrong, that they're, go that they're going away from God. They need to turn around. They better repent or it's going to be bad news for them. That's usually not a way to attract people for a ministry. And yet, because God's Spirit was empowering John the Baptist, he was attracting thousands of people out there. John was a radical. He was not mainstream, and he was unafraid to let 
everybody know exactly what he believed. And John needed passion. He needed passion to fulfill the calling God gave him. John was what I call a pioneer. And pioneers need passion. Why? Because as they say, the pioneers are the ones who take the arrows. Pioneers create something from nothing. Pioneers bring in something new. Pioneers tend to threaten the old and the established. Pioneers like John, they ruffle a lot of feathers. And that's exactly what John did. Often people look on a pioneer and see them as eccentric, as strange. But their passion is what attracts other pioneers. And the passion of John the Baptist attracted a number of men who ended up becoming Jesus' disciples. And you need to read John chapter 1 to find that out. So here's a question I have for you before we get to Jesus and his baptism. What was it that gave John the Baptist? What gave him his passion? Okay, let's go through this real quick together. Number one, John got his passion because he spent time in solitude. And that doesn't mean like Lisa was talking before. It doesn't just mean that John was isolated and he wasn't around anybody else. John was in solitude, but he was never alone because God was with him and he was learning from God and he was getting his, his message and his empowering from God's spirit. John lived in the desert and as he did, he spent a lot of time with God. He boiled with the presence of God and he could hardly stay quiet when it was finally time for him to speak. So he spent time in solitude with God. Number two, John felt consumed with his mission. John the Baptist was a man on a mission. He knew that Messiah was coming soon, and God's people, the ones who were godly, the ones who were willing to turn away from their sin back to God and be baptized, that, that they needed to be prepared. They needed to get ready for Messiah's coming. So he was consumed with his mission. Number three, John had a strong sense of justice, right? He had a strong sense of justice. Uh, here's another way to turn off a crowd. Uh, this is like you guys are sitting here and say, I'm John the Baptist. You come out to the wilderness to hear me and you say, hey, so what do you want us to do? And John the Baptist says, you brood of vipers, who told you to avoid the coming wrath, right? You brood of vipers, you venomous snakes. Well, thanks. I love you too, you know? It'd be, it'd be like, come on, John, that's not a way to, to gather a crowd and win people over. But he was telling people the truth. If you're not willing to repent and turn, turn back to God, you're in trouble. And so finally the people said, okay, I, we do. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a regular person in Israeli society. I want to turn back to God. What should I do? Tax collectors would come to John the Baptist and say, I collect taxes for a living for Rome. What should I do? Uh, soldiers, even Roman soldiers, would come to John the Baptist and say, I'm a Gentile, but I believe in the God of Israel, and I'm turning to him in faith. What should I do? And so John, he basically has a threefold message. He says, look, you see somebody who has no clothes, and you have extra clothes, share your clothes with them. You see somebody who has no food and is hungry, and you have extra food, share your food with the poor. That's number one. Number two <laughs> For the tax collectors, it's, uh, he's basically telling them, don't rip people off in business. You're only to collect so much. Your, your superiors are telling you, you need to collect this much money for Rome. Well, don't go collect a bunch of extra money and then pocket, their, pocket the rest for yourself. Only collect what you're required to collect. Be fair in your tax collection system. I'm going to send this message to the IRS. Okay, 
Uh, so number, and then number three uh, to the soldiers, do not use your power. You have authority and power as government officials. You have authority and power. You wield the sword for the authority of the state. And that has been given to you by God to, to rule the people. But don't do it in a way that exploits your power or intimidates or puts other people down in an unfair way. Treat people fairly. That's showing repentance. That's the evidence of repentance in people's lives. Share your clothes and food with the poor. Don't rip people off in business. Be fair and just. And don't, if you have power over other people, don't use that power to abuse them or exploit them, right? So now we come to slide, slide 10. Um, uh, no, slide, sorry, number four. John understood. This is the last uh, point about what gave John his passion. John was passionate because he knew he had to preach passionately and loudly and to gain a big a crowd as he could because he knew his time was limited. John was a doer. He was going to be, he knew that his job, he wasn't the groom. The Messiah was going to be like the groom in a wedding illustration, you know, where you have a groom and a bride. The bride's supposed to be the church, the body of Christ. You guys know that from being around Christian teaching for a while, that, but in a wedding illustration, we, the church, God's people, we're supposed to be the bride. Jesus is supposed to be the groom. He's the husband. And John the Baptist said, well, if Messiah is the groom and the church is the bride, uh, I'm like the best man. And I'll just be the best man, the friend of the bridegroom. I'm here to make sure that the, broom and the, and the groom and the bride get together. And so John says the best way to do that is finally when Messiah shows up, then, then the time of my ministry is coming to a close. And he says, therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. And look what John says. It's, it's a great passage to memorize for anybody who's in Christian leadership, anybody who's in ministry. John the Baptist said, when I'm around Jesus, what I'm trying to do is I want Jesus to increase. And in order for Jesus to increase, in order for him to be the center of attention, I need to decrease. I need to get myself, my ego, the person who I want the attention. I want everybody. I want to, oh, wonderful. You know, I want all of that for myself sometimes and my own ego. But he says in real Christian ministry, you got to put that aside. You got to say, let me decrease Jesus so you can increase. And that is a great attitude that John the Baptist had. So there's John the Baptist for you. Now let's talk about Jesus because he's the main person in this great redemption story of God. John says this, talking about the coming Messiah. He says, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who's more powerful than I. And when he comes, the, it, it, he's like, he's so awesome. The straps of whose sandal, I'm not even worthy to untie. I'm not even worthy to be a slave. I, he, I baptize you with water, but he, Messiah, when he comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so Jesus, uh, Jesus comes up at that moment and he's ready to be baptized. Um, so Jesus shows up on the scene and he's ready to be baptized by John. Now, some of you guys are probably thinking this question. Well, Jesus, what was he doing before he walked down to the Jordan River to get baptized? I mean, it says in Luke's gospel, you can read it near the end of chapter 3, Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but in, in Jewish culture in the first century, for the religious leaders, the rabbis, which is a, a Hebrew word for teacher, right? 
for the rabbis to be officially ordained into their ministry, they needed to be a minimum age. And guess what age that was? 30 years old. So Jesus was waiting, working in the carpenter shop, quietly waiting uh, his time until it was time for him to publicly launch his ministry. And when that time came, Jesus put down the tools in his carpenter shop and he walked 60 miles from Nazareth all the way down to the Jordan River so that he could meet up to where John the Baptist was baptizing and Jesus was going to be baptized by John. That was going to be the step. That was going to be the, the announcement that Jesus was now publicly starting his ministry. And he came there to be baptized by John. Now, very interesting because John the Baptist sees Jesus coming and John the, the Baptist recognizes hey, by revelation from God, hey, this is Messiah. And so Jesus is now in the water with John, and, and, you know, John's baptized thousands of people already, and he's like, you know, I baptize you with a repentance, and he does all that. I'm baptized, you baptize you, and he looks up at the next person, and oh my goodness, this is Jesus. This is the Messiah. This is the one that I've been waiting for. This is the one I've telling everybody that he's the one to look to, not me. I'm a witness to the light. I'm not the light. He's the light. Right? He's the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world. And John the Baptist does what any of you or I would do. You want me, Jesus, you want me to baptize you? <laughs> I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you. Now that's showing true humility. But Jesus says in Matthew chapter 3, you know, uh, when John says, I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you, Jesus says, we're going to do this, John, because... Let it be done. Let me be baptized by you, John, in order to fulfill all righteousness. So we ask this question. Why did Jesus get immersed? Why did Jesus get baptized? Well, number one, to fulfill all righteousness, to do everything that's right by God. Number two, to announce Messiah's arrival and the inception or the beginning, the launching of Jesus' ministry. And then number three, and I think it's a really important uh, concept right here that I think everybody needs to understand, and it's not an easy concept to understand. Jesus was baptized to identify himself with humanity's sin and his moral failure. Do you remember why John was baptizing, right? John was baptizing a baptism of repentance. Repentance means you need to turn away from your sins to God. Did Jesus need to turn away from his own sins in order to follow God? No. Because Jesus never sinned. Jesus was completely morally perfect his entire life. Jesus was tempted. The, the, the scriptures tell us Jesus was tempted in all ways just as we were, yet he was without sin. That's why he could be the spotless lamb of God to go to the cross and pay for the sins of mankind. So Jesus never sinned. So Jesus obviously wouldn't be getting baptized as a show of repentance unto God. So why did Jesus get baptized? It's number three. That's the key to the whole thing. Jesus was getting baptized to identify himself with humanity's sin and with his moral failure. So uh, Jesus, uh, John gave this testimony. This is in slide number 17 here. Uh, John gave this testimony. He says, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, and I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said, 
the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain, that's the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And now, remember, when John says, I, didn't, I, I, I came, I came as a witness to the light. I'm not the light. Jesus is the light. And John says, what does a witness do? He testifies and he says, I testify that this is God's chosen one. Right? So, John was willing to baptize Jesus because that's the way Jesus wanted it. Jesus was willing to be baptized to identify himself with man's sin. Let me go back to that phrase, identify himself with man's sin. It says, uh, it says in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17. This is back to slide 13 now. Thank you. Therefore... This is the author of Hebrews saying, wait a minute, what did Jesus come to do? Why did Jesus become a human being like us? Why did Jesus identify with mankind in our sin? It says, therefore, it was necessary for him, Jesus, to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. You realize that when the Jewish priests when they would be at the temple and they would go in the old testament and they would offer their sacrifices to god what a priest usually did was he would put his hand on the animal and this innocent animal who didn't have any sin to be you know having to die for but by covenant agreement with god this this poor animal this lamb or this goat had to die for the sins of the people and the priest would confess the sins of the people onto the animal and the animal would then identify with the sin of the people, and then the priest would kill the animal and offer its blood as a sacrifice to God. The animal became identified with sin because that's the way God set it up. Jesus was identifying with us mankind in our sin. Let me give you a, a, an example of identification. We are in Black History Month, right? February 2020, we're in Black History Month. And I was reading in 1965 in March, there was a famous march, there's a movie about it called Selma. There was a famous mar uh, march in the month of March, 1965. They were marching from Selma, Alabama to Montgomery, the capital of Alabama. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. And a, and a bunch of his friends and followers, they were marching because um, blacks had been given the right to vote and yet they were being denied the right to vote by these white supremacists that were living in Alabama. So they decided they would have a march, a nonviolent protest march uh, from Selma to Montgomery in order to say uh, we by the government, the federal government has given us, been given us the right to vote. So we have this right. We're going to march and uh, we're going to do it peacefully. We're not doing any violence, but we're going to march to exercise our right to vote. And they, of course, there were two marches on Selma, Alabama, March 7 and March 9. On the first march, they were attacked by, by the uh, police there in Alabama, the state police, and it was terrible. And America saw a lot of it on television and, and news reporting, and that's part of what changed things around in America. Some 50 is 65 no 55 years ago is when this happened that wasn't that's in our lifetime for most of us so this is not ancient history when this was happening and in selma alabama there was a number of people marching a number of african americans obviously a number of blacks but there were a number of white people who were some of many of whom were strong christians there was a man who was marching with them in the second row 
to Selma, Alabama on March 9. His name was James Reeb. He was a pastor from Boston. He was a civil rights activist. And he, though he was not black, was identifying with the plight of the black people, of their lack of constitutional right to vote. In, in practical terms. And so he went and marched with them. Unfortunately, that night, Pastor James Reed was attacked by white supremacists and he was killed. And he gave his right, he gave his life for the cause of giving blacks the right to vote in America. You talk about identification. He wasn't black. He, had, he was white. He had the right to vote. He could vote anytime he wanted. But he identified with the plight of these people. And he gave his life for that. In a sense, that's what Jesus was doing for us. He was identifying with mankind and with our moral failure and with our sin. And Jesus was saying, look, I am going to take all of the penalty, all of the wrongdoings that mankind has ever done, and I'm going to take that upon myself. He was going to identify with human sinners when he went to the cross. And he was going, as a substitute payment for sin, he was going to take our punishment. And that's why it says there in 2 Corinthians, God made him, Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What an amazing trade. We give all of our sins over to Jesus. He paid for them on the cross. And in exchange, Jesus gives us all his righteousness. And now when God sees us who follow Jesus, he sees us with the righteousness of Christ. What an amazing Savior we have. Because Jesus was willing to identify with us. He got baptized by John to launch his ministry and to identify with human sinners like you and me. So, one last testimony of John the Baptist. Let's go to slide 18 now. It says... John the Baptist, this is in chapter 3, you, you hear a lot of testimony of John in, in John's gospel. And John says this, the father loves the son, the father has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the son, in Jesus, has everlasting life. I don't know how you can make it any clearer than this. This is what's great about the gospel of John. It's so clear. It's the simplest Greek in the entire New Testament, and yet it's the most profound. That's the way God works. He, believes, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Back when John the Baptist was talking about the axe at the root of the tree, back when he was saying the fire is getting ready, oh, and the wheat and the chaff are going to be separated, and the chaff is going to go into the fire, that was talking about those who refuse to believe those who do not obey, those who don't listen to the gospel and heed God's warning and saying, you need to come into eternal life through a living relationship with Jesus because he gave his life for you. And he says, if you don't do that, the wrath of God abides on him. So now, friends, we've studied Jesus' baptism. And I want to ask you a question. Where, where do you see yourself today? Where are you? What does baptism mean for you? Now, maybe you were baptized as a child, and you can say, I barely remember it. I was a kid in a, in a church, and everybody said, hey, everybody needs to believe and be baptized into Jesus. And I did it, and I'm good today. Maybe you're like me. I was a late teen in life, and I didn't know about 
uh, what baptism meant, but I came to this church, and they were, they were New Testament preaching the gospel, and they said, hey, you need to, you need to hear the good news about Jesus. You, you believe the message. You turn, away from God, from your, you turn away from your sins to God. You confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. You believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. And then as a public declaration, as a, as a pledge of allegiance to Jesus Christ publicly, you are to get in the waters of baptism. And when you get in the waters of baptism, you identify. You know how Jesus identified with you when he got baptized, when he went to the cross, he identified with us in our sin and our moral failure? We identify with Jesus when we get baptized. Because look what it says in Romans. It says, don't you know that all of you who are baptized into Christ Jesus, you were baptized into his death? Did you know that happened when you were being baptized? You were being baptized into Jesus' death. So when you went down under the water, that's why we baptize by immersion. Because you don't, the, the picture of this doesn't happen by sprinkling. And what a sacrament means is a sacrament is a physical act that's picturing a spiritual reality. So when you get baptized physically, you're, physically your body's going down under the water, you're being baptized into a death, a death to your old way of life, a death to your independence from God, and now you're being raised, so you're buried with Christ through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. When I baptize people, I say you're buried with Christ, and then you hold them down until they bubble. No, that's not true. But you're buried with Christ, and, and somebody said, wash away my sins, and he said, oh, I'm going to be down there a while. Um, uh, you're buried with Christ to be raised to walk in newness of life. And it's a wonderful picture. It's a wonderful picture of your own public willingness to say, you know what? I'm not going to do this. I can't, you can't baptize yourself. You can't say, well, you know what? It says to be baptized, I'll just jump in the swimming pool. I baptize myself. You know, like you jump in the pool. That, that's not baptism in the New Testament. You have other people who are Christ followers. They are the ones who baptize you. That's part of the, the, part of the beauty of baptism. It says, nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. You have to surrender to God and to his will. And you have to say, I'm willing to let somebody else dip me under the water and bring me up out of the water because I want to be a follower of Jesus and that's the way he said to do it. And if Jesus said this is the way to do it in the New Testament, then I want to do what he says to do. So if you've been united with him in death like this, then we will certainly also be united with him in resurrection. Worship team, I'm going to ask you guys to come up. Or is it the choir? Choir. All right, choir, come on up. Everybody, how about the worship team and the choir? Why don't you guys come up together? And as you're making your way up, I'm reminding you, Paul's painting a beautiful picture here. He says, when you're being baptized, when you're being lowered into that water, you're identifying with Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. When you get baptized, you're dying to your old way of life. You come up out of the water. You're being raised to a new life. I don't know if you've ever taken that step before. There are a lot of people, I believe, e even in this church that are part of our church family. There are a lot of people who've, who've placed their faith in Jesus. You trust in Jesus. You've maybe even confessed Jesus as Lord out loud. 
But have you taken the step of obedience? Have you followed him in the waters of baptism? What we're going to do is in two weeks from today, sorry, three weeks from today, because it's on March 8th, right? I can do the math. Three weeks from today, on Sunday, March 8th, we are going to have a baptism day. And if you have yet to be baptized into Christ and you want to take that step of faith, you want to be obedient to God, you're going to have the opportunity to do that. Now, how are Lisa and I, how are we even going to know that you want to be one of those people? You have to tell us. So part of going public is I got to tell Jim that I'm going to be baptized. You can take one of those welcome cards in front of you and you're going to say, I'm interested, I want to be baptized. And we'll, we'll make the arrangements for you to do so on Sunday, March 8th, okay? Let's make it as simple as we can. You ready to pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for the ministry of John the Baptist. Thank you for his passion. Thank you that he was so willing to do your will. He was so excited about, about Messiah coming on the scene that he gave his life, literally, for that ministry. And he was willing to go to prison and die a martyr's death in prison because he had such a passionate zeal for you and your kingdom and for justice and righteousness. Thank you, Lord, that he gave his life as a witness and a testimony to point people to Jesus. And Lord, thank you that you were willing to come and you were willing to identify with mankind, with us, in our lostness, in our sin, in our rebellion against God, and you were willing to identify with us and to launch your ministry by being baptized. Lord, we have so much more to learn about you, but we pray that we would follow you in that step as well, that each one of us would, would be obedient to you in, the, in those waters of baptism. Help us to follow you with all of our heart and to love you with all of our soul and mind and strength. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.